Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? That there was Herb Baumeister, stating that all he wants for Christmas is some M&Ms and a hug. What he doesn't mention is that he'd probably like a drink and a fat line of coke to bang down on the backside of a strangled man. Things aren't going so well, and he needs a release. The Save-A-Lot thrift stores that he and his wife Julie had worked so hard to make profitable begin to bleed money in 1993 and 94 due to the Baumeister's marital issues. They were no longer a team, rather a bickering mess, the stress of their failing marriage negatively influencing every business decision. Herb begins to drink heavily, heavier than he's ever drank before, and was becoming belligerent with employees and customers. After a long day at work, he would return home, spend some time with the kids, then withdraw downstairs to his pool house, where he would spend hours drinking and crying on the shoulders of his only friends, the mannequins he'd placed all about his humid sanctuary, mannequins of which he'd practiced wrapping a pool hose about their necks, in anticipation of live company he'd soon be bringing home from the city. Julie, sensing that Herb needed time to himself to work out whatever the hell was going on with him, took the kids and left for the entire summer. Herb began using cocaine and working on a new persona, which he would debut once back out on the gay scene. Being in his mid-forties, Herb wasn't exactly fresh meat, and it was unlikely any of his old friends would still be around to help him wade back into the dating pool. They had either moved on or were victims of the AIDS plague of the 80s and early 90s. As an older, not very handsome man, he was invisible, beneath notice. This would eventually serve him well, though I'm certain his first few visits to the bar were the definition of fucking awkward. He must have looked like any other aging closet case, standing at the bar as if it were a bus stop for love, clean-shaven, hair combed like a child's on photo day, fresh as a daisy in his khakis, press shirt, and cologne-dabbed leather jacket. He held no attraction for the boys in their prime, not even for the ones aging out of the scene in their thirties. He attracted people with his money and cocaine, on the rare occasion where he was approached or wasn't rebuffed on his own approach of another bar patron, he introduced himself as Brian Smart. That summer, men begin to vanish from gay bars in Indianapolis, but police aren't interested in following up on the disappearances and do not really search for the missing men. The belief as to what was going on around the coffee pot in Indianapolis police stations probably went something along these lines. 
You hear we got another missing from the gay bar? What you think? Ah, homeless fall out with their families all the time. They're big boys, capable of taking care of themselves. They're probably all in a bush somewhere, taking care of each other right now. Am I right, Sergeant? <laughs> Sergeant spits out his coffee, backs are slapped. Something like that was likely the attitude. The first known victim lured away from the city, out into the country, and eventually down the winding road to Fox Hollow Farms in the dead of night was Jeffrey Allen Martin, 31, in June of 1993. This was a big step for her, who we can safely assume had been killing and dumping young men by the road for years on business trips as the I-70 Strangler. It's big for many reasons, but in respect to Herb's own satisfaction, it's significant because he never had this kind of time before to enjoy a kill. Herb was fascinated with the body's reaction to death. He was fascinated with the deterioration of anything, really, which reminds me of the time he took photos of a dead raccoon by the road, then called the news when a paint sprayer went by touching up the lines and sprayed over the coon's face. Herb got himself on TV for that one. Here's a clip of him acting outraged by the incident. Herb Baumeister of Carmel saw it all. I said to my son, they're going to hit that raccoon with a spray gun, and sure enough, they just strike right over its face and neck. And I didn't even move it, you know, no effort to, you know, get it out of the way. So I happened to have a Polaroid with me, so I took a shot at the thing. A raccoon, which met its demise on the yellow line, became one with the paint. The raccoon has since been removed. This is all that's left. This was just, you know, uh, a painter should have had a chalk line run around his career by state officials. There was no excuse for that. I mean, the poor thing deserved a better fate than that. Outrageous. That poor dead-ass raccoon I was taking photos of for some fucking reason deserved better than that. The man who did it should be fired. A chalk line drawn around his career, even. No doubt Herb spoke about that incident to anyone who would listen, with his gosh-golly-gee cadence and big goofy white teeth hanging from his face all the while. I know Herb Baumeister. He's the guy who never shuts up. The guy who thinks that sharing something he finds interesting with you is likely the bright spot of your day. He's an overgrown child, and that same smile he can't get rid of when sharing some snippet of info he just gleaned from a popular mechanics magazine at the doctor's office is the same smile he wears when strangling a man in a pool room full of mannequins. Though his eyes are much more focused and dark when immersed in a meaningful task, in public, they're goofy, rolling around like a Muppet says his mouth motors on about something innocuous to keep the real thoughts stamped down in the back of his head. Eyes like that, you never want to halt and focus on you. That's for certain. Imagine a Muppet with its eyes always awry, its limbs constantly flailing, its mouth chattering incessantly. Then picture all that motion coming to a halt, and those googly eyes slowly centering, focused on you now as if they had just realized some answer. That's the deadly stare his first victim likely looked at, of the monster beneath facades kept by men, like Herb Baumeister. Herb was heavily interested in autoerotic asphyxiation, the practice of choking or being choked by a sex partner while coming to orgasm. Herb likely invited his first victim of Fox Hollow down to the pool room, where, on top of the cocaine, he offered drinks one of which would eventually be doctored and used to further relax his would-be victim who he soon would begin massaging. Herb, it's been said, had magic hands. He then would ask to be choked while he masturbated, and once satisfied, he'd return the favor. This is when the real pleasure began for the King of Fox Hollow, 
From the moment where his victim would realize the rope, or in this case pool hose, was increasing in tightness rather than lessening, to the time when he would check on a dumped body and find its eyeballs being pecked at by a crow, Herb was full of contentment. It is very likely that the entire string of murders associated with Baumeister's alias Brian Smart demonstrate that Herb was losing control and devolving. He was picking up men in Indianapolis, so close to home, and he was taking them to his place. On the one hand, this afforded him as much time as he wanted to play with them and assured privacy. It also allowed him to dispose of their bodies more safely. On the other hand, by picking men from the relatively small gay community in Indianapolis and older men, that is not homeless teen prostitutes like he'd likely targeted as the I-70 Strangler, he increased the chances of someone noticing a pattern, as these new victims had families that would immediately notice them missing. It seems that Herb assumed, to start, that all gay men must be cut off from their families and lacking in strong ties, the same belief as many in the local police force. He would correct this mistake the second summer of killings, but it was too late. There were already people who believed a serial killer was on the prowl, maybe even a team, a duo who was working together to overpower these men and live out some shared sadistic fantasy. It's been suspected that Herb Baumeister did not always work alone, that his confident form of murder suggested that he felt somehow protected and above suspicion, perhaps as a result of being a part of some club. Herb always wanted to be part of a club. Then again, he often ended up alone when it came to really coming out of the closet, letting his third alter ego step out to play, the one that to this day is said to stroll around Fox Hollow Farm chasing the spirits of the unknown he left behind, grooming himself in the private bathroom that the current owners feel so uneasy about. The second victim came mid-summer of 93. His name was Alan Broussard, 28 years old. Broussard was on his way to Brothers Club to meet his boyfriend. He had come out as gay to his parents and remained in close contact with them. He had strong ties to the community, so he was a bad choice for her. Based on the account of the one survivor and common sense, Herb usually picked up single men. He also usually picked up older men and less handsome men. Since Alan would not have been tempted to leave his boyfriend for Herb, and since he never arrived inside the bar, it is likely that Herb enticed him with cocaine. The third victim was Roger Goodlett, 34. He was less handsome than Broussard, but he was well known on the scene and had many casual friends. And one extraordinarily dedicated friend who we'll get to shortly. Roger was also close with his family. He went missing from our place bar, and a witness saw him willingly get into a pale blue car with Ohio plates, a vehicle of which matched Baumeister's ride. Exactly. Herb's biggest mistake was that he assumed things were still as they had been in the 60s, that gay men, by definition, were high-risk victims and were shunned by society. Some things, like police attitudes, had stayed much the same, but in the rest of society, a transformation was taking place. The Indianapolis victims had locals looking for them. Summer soon came to an end, and the Baumeister family was back together at Fox Hollow Farm. Herb continued to drink himself into oblivion and snort his way back out, driving the business into the ground all the while. The gardens and orchard were overgrown, the lawn cut in only the most necessary areas. Herb often walks the grounds and slips into the forest for long periods unnoticed. There he enjoys multiple cans of beer and fawns over his summer's work. The strangled bodies of half-naked men, which he pokes at with his stick or simply analyzes with his bright, crazed eyes, taking in the decomposition, the flesh that's been torn at by wildlife, 
the bugs that stream in and out through the eye sockets. In the following spring of 1994, Herb's young son, Eric, is playing in the orchard when he stumbles across an entire human skeleton, partially buried in the ground. He takes the skull to show his mom, believing it to be an ancient Native American skeleton belonging to one of the people he'd learned about in school. Julie went out to see for herself, completely aghast by the morbid trophy Eric had brought into the house, and could not believe her eyes. It looked like someone had just laid down for a nap and died in the orchard. She questioned her, and he laughed it off, telling her it was a teaching skeleton which had belonged to his father, and he had been storing it in the garage, which was full of hoarded goods. He said he decided to bury the skeleton in the orchard to avoid a situation where she or the kids came upon it. To bolster this story and keep Julie happy, he then cleaned up the garage and removed the skeleton from the property. Julie adopted the lie, told the kids this was the story to repeat, and repeated the story herself. Around this time, the second known victim from Fox Hollow, Alan Broussard's mother, having been rejected by law enforcement, hired a private investigator to look into her son's disappearance. P.I. Virgil Vandegrift was a former cop and had good connections and solid relationships with the Indianapolis police. At the time, the standards for reporting an adult missing were very high in Indianapolis. A 24-hour period had to pass to be deemed missing, followed by a 30-day period where the report would be handled by local police, until finally being handed over to missing persons. They wanted to make sure whoever was missing was definitely fucked by the time the chat looked into it. 30 days? This led to local police routinely handing out the private investigator Vandegrift's card as he specialized in missing persons cases. Alan Broussard's mother said she last saw him when he went out to meet his boyfriend at a gay bar called Brothers. He never arrived and was never seen again. Alan had had troubles with alcohol and drugs before, which made it very easy for local police to dismiss the case. P.I. Vandegrift took the case on, which he believed he could easily resolve. He assumed that Alan had run away on a drug binge, and his investigation would have a somewhat happy ending. A week later, Vandegrift is hired by another mother with a very similar story. Her son, Roger Goodlett, 34, left his place in July of 1993 to go to a gay bar, and was never heard from again. Broussard and Goodlett were similar in looks. Alarm bells begin to ring in the P.I.'s mind, and he goes forward, investigating the disturbingly similar cases. With gusto. Vandegrift pounds the asphalt. He interviews clients and employees at gay bars all over town and prints missing persons posters with pictures of the two men and his number, which he hands out. Most of the people in the clubs do not care. Goodlett was quickly dismissed by most of just having taken off, but one friend only known by the alias of Tony Harris, stayed in touch with Goodlett's mother. She had given him some of the posters, and he knew where the investigation stood. P.I. Vandegrift found but only one lead. Missing Roger Goodlett was last seen leaving the gay bar with a man and getting into a blue car, sporting Ohio plates. Then the hard work finally pays off when the publisher of a gay magazine, Indiana World, calls Virgil Vandegrift. He wants to make sure he knows that there's been a series of young gay men going missing from Indianapolis gay bars. And the magazine had printed a story about the missing Jeff Jones. Jeff Jones looked a lot like the two other missing men. This character, P.I. Vandegrift I keep speaking about, looks like he's from the movie Unforgiven. White mustache, cowboy hat, grizzled look, sharp eyes. He immediately believes that he's looking for a serial killer. Vandegrift heads over to the Indianapolis PD and the FBI, where he's basically ignored. 
The only person who had given the time of day was a detective named Mary Wilson from the Missing Persons Unit. Mary Wilson had transferred to missing persons from sex crimes, and she was on the hunt for her own serial killer nobody would listen to her about. She was searching for a rapist and killer who had been assaulting and murdering male prostitutes, dumping their strangled bodies near Highway I-70. When Mary Wilson heard Vandegrift's lead on the pale blue car with the Ohio plates, she started to suspect that they were both on the trail of the I-70 Strangler. Summer, 1994. Mary and Virgil are in a tough situation. They are the only two people looking for a prolific serial killer who is still active, and they are out of leads. Then the man known as Tony Harris, the good friend of Roger Goodlett, whose mother won't let her son vanish, comes to Virgil. Tony Harris has had a rough night and one heck of a morning, too. P.I. Virgil Vandegrift was his third stop of the day, having previously gone to police and the FBI, but they would not take him seriously. Tony tells Virgil he'd been out at the bar the night before, a bar that had, at Tony's request, posted his friend Roger Goodlett's missing poster. Tony knew there was likely a serial killer on the loose, and he knew the investigation was going nowhere, so he promised Roger's mother that he would do whatever he could to find her son. He was keeping an eye out for leads, and last night, Tony saw a middle-aged man at the bar who was examining the poster for a long period of time. Tony became convinced, for no reason he could lay a finger on, that this man knew what had become of Roger. So he confidently strolled his six-foot-five frame over and introduced himself. The man said his name was Brian Smart, and he was a landscaper from Ohio. Tony tried to talk about Roger, but Brian quickly found ways to change the subject and began ordering Tony many drinks, which Tony covertly dumped in an attempt to see what Brian's game was while clear-headed. Brian Smart came across as very strange, and as if he was hiding something, besides the fact that he was obviously using a false name. Baumeister likely made an effort not to stand out too much, considering he was trolling for victims. He was accustomed to making the approach himself, and this reversal of roles likely had him flustered. Tony's gut soon became convinced that this odd man had killed his friend. There was something deeply sinister behind those goofy bright eyes and toothy smile. He made the decision to back off his naturally strong personality, and let the man believe his tactics were working, that he was, in fact, in charge. Brian Smart soon invited Tony to go back with him to his place. He claimed to be temporarily staying in a mansion with an indoor pool that a friend of his in real estate owned. He claimed to be doing the landscaping for a coming sale and living in the house in the meantime. He said they could go for a swim. He said they could maybe have more fun there. Tony, wanting to find out what had happened to his friend, agreed though he had no reason to go with this old, creepy guy except that he was now certain he had murdered Roger. He figured he could be wrong, and if he wasn't, he had a few advantages Roger hadn't had. He was on his guard. He was only pretending to be drunk. And he was huge at 6'5". P.I. Vandegrift listens intently. He's a tough old guy and difficult to shock, but this detail raises his eyebrows and wiggles his mustache. 6'5 or not, it takes only a gun being pulled on any person to turn them into a child again. Tony continues his incredible story, sharing next that they got into Brian's car, a blue Buick with Ohio plates, and drove into the country. This is another detail that likely shot P.I. Vandegrift's white mustache onto his forehead and dropped his eyebrows onto his lips. The I-70 Strangler, as Mary Wilson had informed him, was thought to drive a blue car with Ohio plates. Tony did not know the area, so he could not tell Vandegrift exactly where the mansion he was taken to was located. 
Baumeister drove back roads and was sure to distract his passenger with chatter as they traveled. Tony tried to notice as many details as he could. He said the man probably had money. His clothes looked expensive. He said the estate had horse ranches and described a split rail fence and a sign in front of the driveway, with one of the words being farm. The house itself was a creepy-looking Tudor mansion, featuring a heated indoor swimming pool of which Brian Smart could not stop gushing about. They walked through the house, down a spiral staircase, and to the pool room. Tony declined to drink and declined cocaine, which seemed to fluster Brian. There were mannequins around the pool, of which Brian explained were the owners, and that he was lonely, before moodily excusing himself to the washroom. While he was gone, Tony snooped around and found baggies of some kind of drug stashed between the bottles and the wet bar. When Herb returned, he was in a much-improved mood, chatty and in complete host-with-the-most mode. He again offered Tony a drink, and though Tony now needed one, he declined, worried that he could be dosed and beginning to realize that this is what had likely happened to his friend. This, in fact, is exactly what happened to Roger. He is basically viewing his friend's final moments, a front-row seat, and he needs to be very careful not to end up on the stage himself. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. <laughs> Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, there's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, it's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient and it's an amazing value especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Today. All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great long-lasting flavors, and they have options in two milligrams and three milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12 infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix nicotine-infused toothpicks. 
So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Brian Smart is gone. Herb Baumeister suggests they take a swim. They both remove their clothes. Herb looking as if he's wearing a stubble-covered wetsuit once he does so. Tony, a beast of a man, likely not so intimidated now, dives in, trying to act natural. But Herb remains on the outside, on the edge of the pool, drinking, observing his prospective prey, calculating how to bring this big bear down. He stretches out his hand and Tony takes it, mesmerized suddenly by this new version of Brian Smart. He allows himself to be led out of the water and into a lounge chair where the magical hands of Herb Baumeister get to work. Tony, despite himself, becomes relaxed and aroused. Herb begins speaking of breath play and how wonderfully intense it could be. He asks Tony to choke him while he masturbates. Tony complies. Then Herb offers to return the favor. He gently wraps the pool hose around Tony's neck and begins to slowly apply pressure. At first, the exercise is quite pleasurable, but then Tony comes back to earth and is mortified to find he's allowed himself to become so compromised. The hose is tightening. This is what became of Roger. This is now what will become of him, if he can't manage to exit the stage at which the bright lights now shine furiously upon him through Herb Baumeister's intensely focused stare. Tony goes limp. Herb continues strangling for a few moments, then releases the hose. He's maybe more curious than convinced that Tony is dead. Usually the eyeballs pop out. The tongue protrudes to an enormous length. The face turns purple. He's disappointed. He studies the body like a bloodhound who's lost the scent. This is when Tony opens his eyes and Herb almost goes flying into the pool. He's furious. He screams that there have been accidents. And how dare Tony make him believe that one had happened here, just now. Tony calmly asks Herb if what happened to Roger Goodlett had been an accident. Herb looks blankly at his guest, exhausted, and says that he has no idea what he's talking about, then slumps into a chair beside one of the mannequins and passes out, snoring almost immediately. Tony can't believe this shit. Moments ago, this slippery little fuzzy eel-like man had been practically riding his back, choking the life from him in a clear attempt to commit murder. And now he slept like a baby, a can of beer dangling from his hand his bottle, speedo hitched high like a sexy diaper. Tony rubs at his sore neck, then decides to do what he came here to do. Got a little sidetracked there. <laughs> he quietly puts his clothes on and creeps up the spiral staircase terrified by what he might find in this nightmare mansion. The downstairs appears to be nothing but random items one might find at a yard sale, a hoarder's paradise. On the second floor, Tony is shocked to discover children's rooms, closets with women's clothing, family pictures that include the man who calls himself Brian Smart, smiling that toothy grin, looking back at him with eyes that seem ready to jump out of the sockets. Tony creeps back down to the pool, knowing now that Brian Smart is certainly not this man's real name. He needs to know who he is. He needs to find his wallet. 
but as he approaches the pile of clothing at poolside, Herb suddenly wakes up. Tony insists that the man he knows is Brian drive him home immediately, and Herb gets up groggily, agreeing that that's a good idea. On the ride back, Herb is anxious, repeating his desire to see Tony again, sometime soon. Tony agrees to meet him again the next week, and manages to stay nonchalant enough to survive the ride. His size came in handy here, no doubt. Yes, Herb Baumeister was most likely accustomed to killing men in his vehicle, but not while groggy from drink and drugs, not while spent from a near kill. The Buick pulls up to a curb after Tony points out a house that is not his. Once Tony exits, Herb speeds away before his plate number can be noted and committed to memory. P.I. Vandegrift takes all this down and then calls up his only other member of law enforcement interested in this case, Detective Mary Wilson from the Missing Persons Unit and I-70 Strangler Investigation. Incredibly, and definitely worth mention, is that around this time, Herb Baumeister's brother is found dead in his hot tub, a hose wrap tied around his neck inside his Texas home. It is also around this same time that two shooting deaths and a third attempted homicide, closely resembling the I-70 killings, of which you recall were committed by a lone shooter targeting women in small retail stores, pop up in Texas as well. Coincidence? I don't know. Interesting, and if this were a higher quality true crime show, maybe we would dig deeper. But this is not, so... <laughs> no disrespect intended, but let's continue with what we know for certain. I will say that the survivor of one of these shootings here described the man who attempted her murder as being 5'6 to 5'9, so uh, getting closer and closer to just saying forget her Baumeister as the, uh, as the I-70 shooter. But, you know, interesting that more occurred in Texas around the same time that he could have come to Texas and murdered his brother in the way that he was murdering other men. He got to be slouching like fucking crazy, though, to go from 6'3 to 5'6. A more likely suspect could be Neil Falls, if you want to take a look into that. Hey, maybe Neil and uh, Herb were, were boyfriends. Uh, <laughs> I don't, probably not. Okay, let's move on. Detective Wilson soon arranges to pick up Tony and go for a ride into the country to see if he can recognize anything. However, this is during the daytime. Tony can't find the place, and he feels terrible for letting them down. The only information he has is that the mansion sits at the end of a winding road, and that there's a sign out front with the word farm on it, which is like looking for a needle in a needle stack. P.I. Vandegrift has many contacts, including those with hypnotists and mediums. Tony undergoes hypnosis to try and recover more details about the house, but this approach yields zero results. They next try a medium who goes by the name Wanda. Wanda attempts to get impressions from Tony to help them find the house. After a short while of questioning and feeling Tony out, Wanda stands and firmly advises that he never go back to the house if the opportunity presents itself. co I see a man tied to a bed, handcuffed, spread-eagled, I see pictures being taken while he's being strangled. The tongue is swollen, quite long coming out of the mouth. And the eyes. Oh, that's a hell house. Tony, never go back there again. End quote. During the summer of 1994, Herbert Baumeister killed at least four men that we know of in the fashion which Tony narrowly escaped and dragged them into the woods behind his property to rot that eventually be burned when Herb tired of tracking their deterioration. The names of these men, Richard Hamilton, Manuel Resendez, Alan Livingstone, and Johnny Bear, 
did not hit the newspapers as being missing and barely caused a ripple of concern to flow through the police department. Baumeister had adjusted and was now more careful when selecting victims, spending more time prying into their backgrounds and successfully choosing men without strong ties to the community. Since the police refused to get involved, P.I. Vandegriff sends his own investigator, Bill Hilzig, to eastern Indianapolis to look for the mysterious house. Eventually, after combing countless back roads, he comes across a candidate in Fox Hollow Farm. Vandegrift contacts police in Hamilton County, where it sits, one of the most affluent sections of Indiana, for information as to who owns the mansion on this property. But they shut him down firmly. They are police in a super wealthy county, which basically means they are fancy private security for the homeowners. So the cagey old PI rolls up his sleeves and, using publicly available records, eventually learns that the house is owned by Herbert and Julie Baumeister, a couple who own a chain of thrift stores, but this is as far as he can go without cooperation from Hamilton County authorities. Meanwhile, Julie and Herb's marriage continues to crumble. Julie can't take the mess in the house, so to appease her, Herb relocates the hoarded items he'd neurotically collected for later sale from Fox Hollow to the floors of Save Alive. Business had already been on a sharp decline, and now the distinguishing characteristics that had brought success, neat, clean, well-maintained stores packed with easy-to-find merchandise, were falling by the wayside. Quality control went out the window as the save-a-lots began to look like indoor parking lots for mounds of junk. Herb became increasingly paranoid, likely as a result of being a serial killer on the side and stuffing quarter-sized bumps of coke up his nostrils every 20 minutes. He attacked his workers, accusing them of stealing stock and ruining the business. Employee turnaround rocketed. Meanwhile, Tony, the only person to see the true face of Herb Baumeister and live to tell of its deeply disturbing nature, continued to look for the man he knew as Brian Smart at the bars. August 29, 1995. Tony is at the Varsity Lounge in Indianapolis when suddenly he spots Brian Smart. He steps outside and soon finds Herb's Buick and writes down the plate number. He then contacts Detective Mary Wilson, who runs the plates, which come back as belonging to Herb Baumeister, respected owner of the Save-A-Lot thrift stores and, of utmost interest, a property named Foxhollow Farm. There is now no doubt in the minds of P.I. Vandegriff and Detective Wilson that Herb Baumeister is their man. But Hamilton County police dig in their heels and refuse to request a search warrant from a judge so Detective Wilson decides to see what she can get by visiting Herb at one of his stores. She manages to catch Herb off guard and directly asks him about the cases of several missing Indianapolis men. Herb tries to play it cool with the detective, but his body betrays him. A vein in his neck pulses rapidly and protrudes like a snake beneath his skin throughout the conversation. Detective Wilson asks Herb for his permission to search Fox Hollow Farm, and he declines, instructing her to contact him via his lawyer henceforth. When the detective finally leaves, Herb calls Julie in a panic and informs her that the police want to search the house for stolen merchandise they claim to have been sold at the store. He tells her not to let them search the house until he can sort everything out. Julie is upset, but agrees to follow his lead after Herb pleads that she do this to protect the children from any repercussions. Detective Wilson soon heads to Fox Hollow Farm and, along with another officer, informs Julie that Herb is a suspect in the disappearance of several young gay men, the victims of, quote, homosexual homicide. Julie is baffled by this. How could anyone believe that her Herb would have anything to do with... Wait a minute. 
She pauses, considering their sparse sexual history, remembering the skeleton her son had discovered in the orchard. But then she appears to shake it off, and is soon asking the officers to leave her property. Detective Wilson then attempts to get a warrant for the house, and again is stymied by Hamilton County authorities, who claim that there is still not sufficient evidence to disrupt the upstanding Baumeister family in any way. To clarify, they refuse to even bring it to a judge, who, considering the evidence, should have been the one to make the call. Meanwhile, Herb is going through a slow-motion nervous breakdown. With detectives finally hot on his trail, and the stores on the verge of bankruptcy, he's ready to crack. His erratic behavior at home soon leads Julie to file for divorce. It's not long before she decides to tell Detective Wilson about the skeleton her son found in the backyard, and to give police permission to search the Fox Hollow Farm property. Herb knows that the walls are closing in. He collects his many videotapes, tapes that likely contain proof of his enormous secret, that being that he is a prolific serial killer. He then takes his son up to the cottage to clear his head. This is when Julie makes the call to Detective Wilson. As soon as investigators walk out onto the Baumeister's patio, they see that the backyard is strewn with small, white, and grayish pebbles. Pebbles that up close look like human bone fragments. Of this, they get confirmation from the lab within 24 hours. The next day, a crew descends upon Fox Hollow to begin excavations. Meanwhile, an officer is sent to inform Herb of the investigation taking place in his property, but fails to make an arrest, as he felt there wasn't enough hard evidence just yet to make that necessary. Julie's son has returned home safely. Herb takes this last opportunity to pack up his vehicle and head north to Canada. They find bones everywhere on the property, all over the backyard, in the wooded area, even on a neighbor's land. They find 5,500 bone fragments and teeth in the backyard in the first week of searches, and they continue to find bones there, to this day. When investigators finally believe that they pulled from the woods as many as they could possibly find, some kids from a neighboring farm arrive and tell of bones they've discovered in a nearby creek. When they check out this lead, they are flabbergasted. It's now necessary to call in those they've already sent home. Lying in the creek is a human rib cage. There are handcuffs still locked to the wrists of the skeleton, a chain connecting them draped over the bare spine. It'll be another three weeks of evidence recovery. 6,700 bones are found by a nearby tree. Eleven victims are confirmed, but the number is thought to be much, much higher. July 3rd, 1996. Sarnia, Ontario, Canada. After having spent the night sleeping in his car and being awoken by a concerned officer who notices a large pile of VHS tapes in the back seat, Herb groggily lets the Mountie know he'll gladly be on his way and drives to the shores of Lake Huron, where the rising sun provides the light he needs to write a three-page suicide note. In this note, he laments about his failed marriage and business, speaks about how much he loves his children, but makes no mention of the bones being discovered on Fox Hollow or the men who they belong to many of them faceless to this day, collected together in a box and held in an evidence locker. Herb Baumeister finishes his note by saying he's going to eat a peanut butter sandwich and go to sleep. 
The scene of this suicide has been described in several different ways, but the most disturbing account is that he was discovered on a mound of sand in a parking lot by the shore of Lake Huron, two dead birds laying to his one side as if sacrificed, and Herb himself laying dead upon his makeshift altar, looking oddly at peace and somehow vibrant despite his condition. There's a gunshot wound to the side of his head, though by some accounts, there's no gun found on the scene. The current owners of the estate on Fox Hollow Farm, Rob and Vicki Graves, often think about the Baumeisters, I'm sure. How can they not? Their property and home has become something a legend in ghost hunting circles. They bought the estate in 2009 at an absolute bargain, just under a million dollars. It didn't bother the couple that the property had once been a dumping ground for bodies dragged from the house by Herb Baumeister, that the woods still had bones scattered about it by wildlife. The graves are logical, well-adjusted people. Rob, a luxury car salesman, and Vicky, a pathologist. They, like the Baumeisters back in the early 90s, worked together to groom Fox Hollow back to its potential splendor. The inside of the home had been gutted since the Baumeister's time. Nobody has had much luck with the estate. Foreclosure has been the exit reason for many previous owners. The Graves, however, seemed the perfect couple to redeem the property. They stocked the stables with horses, maintained the beautiful landscape. Rob cleans the indoor pool religiously, using the same pool hose that Herb is known to have misused on occasion. Rob invites friends over to his quaint Tudor mansion, one of which brings along his unusually sensitive little girl who, while walking past the pump room of the pool house, stops, looks in, and says, There's people sleeping in here. This is a spooky place, with dozens of documented disembodied voices being captured on recordings. EVPs, for those in the know, two particularly disturbing recordings I've heard and can't play here almost clearly say, Quote, I've been fooled. And Herb did it. Check the links in the show notes if you're curious. Orbs are often captured on video in the home, and there are countless personal accounts of visitors seeing shadows, hearing footsteps. Vicki Graves shares her experiences in such a matter-of-fact way that before you know it, you find yourself unashamedly believing in ghosts yourself. The most notable experience she shares occurred while admiring her husband Rob's paint job on the outside of the home. She spots a man walking the tree line, then vanishing into the woods. Vicky is shaken by what she's witnessed, and Rob rushes over to the spot to see who goes there. Finding nothing, he returns to his usually composed and completely down-to-earth wife, who tells him, He was wearing a red shirt. I thought he was maybe a looky-loo or something. But then I saw that he had no legs. There have been femurs found on this property, at least one discovered after the recovery crews had long decided they'd had enough. Skulls are one rarity in this boneyard. Those are believed to have been obliterated with a hammer. The rest, for the most part, Herb attempted to destroy in burn pits. I mentioned the femur being discovered because it was found after the property had been thoroughly combed through, found by a tenant the graves had in the guesthouse for a period of time who, while following a legless man in a red t-shirt through the woods one morning as his dog gives chase, eventually finds the leg bone, and maybe puts the floating torso to rest, finally. 
Discovered without alarm to this very day are bone fragments on the grounds of Fox Hollow Farm. The evidence of 11 left hand and thumb joints have been recovered, so there's at least that many, like I mentioned, who were killed here. But it is thought to be a number much higher, and of those known and unidentified, at least a few seem to be hesitant to leave the grounds, or maybe unable, due to the return of the man who sealed their fate. The couple have terrifying nightmares while sleeping in their home, dreams where they are being chased, and sometimes the terror becomes so vivid that they jump out of bed and continue running. Vicky refuses to go into Rob's private bathroom, of which was formerly hers. She hates the way she feels in there. Rob, who himself doesn't appear to be one to grab onto such premonitions, admits that the room has something wrong with it, and doesn't disagree when psychics later claim that the spot is a portal of sorts. He even says out loud in an interview that Herb liked it here. It is impossible not to make the association between Rob Graves and the original caretaker of the Overlook Hotel and Stephen King's The Shining. Impossible for me, at least. I say this not with any disrespect or humor. Rob Graves reminds me of Delbert Grady. You know the butler type who speaks to Jack Nicholson in the washroom about maybe killing his family? Like he had done years ago himself to his twin girls? With an axe? After maybe the spirit of his own Herb Baumeister spoke to him late one night in the lobby? Again, I think Rob Graves seems like a good, reasonable man, and I admire his willingness to open his home to ghost hunters and the public for tours, to share his true feelings as to the presence of spirits in his home and on his property. But damn, I hope he decides to move if he starts accidentally calling Vicky Julie or drinking MGD in his private washroom while shaving his entire body with one of his wife's scalpels. Herb was known to keep a low stubble over his slippery body. I think I alluded to that somewhere along the lines. It's been a strange trip this case. I feel like I've been consumed by it for years. Like I mentioned, the Graves take on a tenant in the guest house to help with expenses, and this tenant, Joe, soon begins experiencing strange happenings himself, besides the floating man in the red shirt. The door to the guest house rumbles with the vibration from knocking at times in the night, and when he answers, of course, nobody is there. On one of these occasions, as he stands confused with the door open on a starless night, Joe swears he sees a shadow pass by him, followed by another. He looks to the door knocker and sees that it is hovering straight up. Then it slams down again. If you'd like to take a break here and see something strange, search on YouTube Herb Baumeister Serial Killer. Scroll to the video by Robert Stafford. It has like 425 views, of which I think 100 are likely mine. At 18.55 of that video, Rob Graves is showing a tour group the door knocker I'm speaking of here. A couple of seconds later, something interesting happens. Some I've shown this bit of video to believe it to be a bug, but I'm about 100% certain it's a ghost. Anyways, <laughs> this tenant, Joe, has this same door open again one night after answering the bangs of the knocker on his door, and claims to have seen the ghost of a young man, soaked by the rain, rush into his washroom as if being forever chased. Joe is now a believer and decides to try to get some documentation of what he's experiencing. He turns off all the appliances one evening and sets up his iPhone to record. He asks the room if there's anybody in here, and when he checks the recording, he discovers he's captured a voice, a voice that clearly states it to be, quote, the married one. Is this her Baumeister? returned to the guest house of which he spent time while separating from his wife, 
returned to Fox Hollow through a portal in his private bathroom after his murderous run came to a violent end? I believe so. I've had a horrible thought swimming in my mind as my first son has grown up. It's ebbing now that he's older and I have another little boy I need to be here for, but for a good while there I had mentally prepared myself to commit suicide should anything happen to him. If he were to, <coughs> if he were to be if he were to be hit by a, <laughs> by a car, I thought uh I thought or something horrible happened to him and I knew him to be gone. I had prepared myself to rush out and end my life. The reason being that if there are other worlds than this, which I do believe is true, then I wanted to catch up to him and help guide him through whatever swirling mess exists as a transition. I didn't want anything else to greet my dead son beyond. I wanted to be there to protect him. Now that's a dark topic. <laughs> it was incredibly difficult to say out loud. It is my belief that evil holds as much sway in worlds beyond as many believe that good holds power here and ultimately governs this state of being we all march through at the moment. We know that Herb Baumeister was a true wolf in sheep's clothing. Maybe a fox is more apt. And now that he has no need for the facade, he continues to feast in his devilish ways, beyond the pale, and upon the mountain he so jealously ruled over for so long, unchecked, returned through a deal with the devil, swept back on a noxious, otherworldly airstream following his strange suicide to continue his reign over the patch of land he knew with great affection as Fox Hollow Farm. Dark Topic is an 1159 media production. To support on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash darktopicpod. For merch... Or just to reach out, visit darktopicpodcast.com. Thank you.